chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. All right, this is a little different. You know, I expected a little bit of worship time. Ooh, I'm tangled up. That's good. That's not different. Um, thanks. And what Royce was kindly trying to say is this is going to be a little longer than usual, but I'm guessing the topic's going to help you stay, pay attention, okay? So it won't be super long. Trust me, but I'm, gonna, I'm kind of trying to do a couple different things at once. And at the end of it, you might wonder to yourself, there's actually a part two. There's actually a part two. <laughs> okay. So, um, how are we doing? It's been a long time, hasn't it? It feels like a long time since I've seen many of you. Um, can we catch up for a second? How was ball break? See how far ago that felt? We ha- it happened. Ha- midterms, we still in there? Okay. Getting the W, that's good. Um, hopefully not too many L's. How about this week? <laughs> okay, overall, okay, nodding, this is good, all right. Uh, well, those of you who don't know me, I enjoy that kind of thing, and my name is Sid Druin, and I'm the campus minister of uh, Ford University Fellowship, and awkwardness is my love language. Uh, you can't tell already. So, anyway, RUOF is a campus ministry that exists to serve the campus, um, Davidson College, and also you all, wherever you are, and however you are. Um, And we mean that uh, very spot on. We really want you to feel um, that this is a place for every kind of person, not just one kind of person. And we want this to be a place where anyone can come from any personal background, any scene on campus, uh, and even any place you are spiritually, whether you're with Jesus or, or for Christianity, or maybe you're neither of those things. Maybe you're convinced of Christianity, maybe you're unconvinced, maybe you're a spiritual skeptic, maybe you're a believer. Um, maybe you just don't feel comfortable with any of those names or none of the above and all of the above. I don't know. We're just welcome. Uh, I hope you feel welcomed and I hope you feel um, glad to be here, really. Um, that's the hope that we have for you, that you feel welcomed and encouraged to be here. Um, if I don't know you, if I've not met you, uh, thanks especially for coming. Uh, if you're new, thanks for coming. And I'd love to get to know you. Uh, I hope I get to meet you. And my interns, uh, Maddie and and Eric, I should say our interns, our interns in RUF um, are here to want to meet you as well. And there's many students that hopefully will say hello. And, and that's what's going on. They're actually generally being friendly. Uh, there's no sales pitch at the end. Uh, so thanks for coming again. So as we settle in, I'm going to talk about, uh, this is dating is what we're talking about t- tonight. But before I get there, let me just kind of set the scene what we've been doing this semester. This semester in large group, we've been talking about relationships. 
relationships. It's a topical series, and we're looking at what does Jesus have to do with friendships? What does Jesus have to do with families? What does Jesus have to do with sex? What does he have to do with dating? What does he have to do with uh, singleness? And what does he have to do with marriage? And even what does Jesus have to do with his own church? And we're going to talk about all those different things, and we've been talking about those different things. Uh, in the first four weeks, we did a big picture exploration of our relationships that I called the foundation of our relationships. Uh, and this story is also sometimes called the gospel. And we saw how all relationships were created good and innocent. And then we saw how every relationship fell into today's destructive and bad patterns. But we also glimpsed how God is at work, how he's redeeming or literally ransoming our relationships often through people like us owning the ways that we hurt others and owning the ways that others hurt us. And then the promise in all of this relationship stuff is that there will one day, someday be a consummation, a time when our relationships will be perfect. And that's where we're moving, that's where we're headed. Um, a few weeks ago, we kind of moved from that big picture perspective to a smaller picture perspective on relationships. And we started to talk about um, what does it look like to remember the good and the bad? How do we reach out and start to try to heal what's hurtful in places like our families and our friendships? So we looked at families and friendships the last couple of weeks, and this week we're going to look at what's good and bad and hurtful and healing about dating. So let me just say, can I just do a little qualification preface uh, to prepare for the Davidson talk back that will happen inevitably? Um, I, this is a loaded topic. Loaded. <laughs> okay, it's loaded here, and it's loaded in the church. Uh, we really can't talk about dating without triggering hairpin opinions. Like, we can't, we'll trip every wire. I'm going to talk about dating because dating implies sex. It implies marriage. It implies biological sex. It implies gender. It implies singleness. It implies lots of loaded terms in our everyday lives. And then on a more personal level, we all tend to be on very different pages about dating, right? We tend to wonder um, whether you've really never dated at all, and there's some of you there here like that, or whether you've dated a lot, some of you think you know all of the answers. So I'm gonna say something, you're gonna cross your arms and be like, yeah, right. And some of you are gonna be dying for me to give you all the answers. Like, how do, you, how do I solve your boy problem? <laughs> or how do I solve your girl problem? I, I, that's some of your expectations. And then there's others of you that are already tired of the topic and I haven't even started. <laughs> so wherever you are, I hope that you'll give me a couple of things. I'm gonna ask you for patience to hear me out all of the way. So don't turn or tune me out before I finish what I'm trying to say. Okay, and along those lines, I would love the kindness for you to separate what I am actually saying versus what I'm not actually saying. Do you understand what I mean by that? Like, I really want the charity from you all to sort of hear, I'm, I've thought very carefully about this topic and hopefully this reflects what the Bible says. And I would love for the charity there to hear what I'm saying and, and not what I'm not saying, if that makes sense. Okay, so last thing, I'm dividing dating into two parts. I know you're gonna be shocked. Um, tonight we're gonna talk about the good purpose of dating, kind of more. And then next week we're gonna talk about the how-to practice of dating. So, um, in the meantime, let's turn our attention to Genesis 2, which we just read. And as we do that, I'm going to pray one more time, and then we'll get started. Father, uh, thanks for um, this time with these students. It's been a while, it feels like. 
Uh, I'm thankful for all of them, um, all the ways that you've brought them in uh, to here. I'm thankful for the ways that um, you've made do, that when people have gotten sick and things have got changed out of order, that you're still present and you're still ordering the universe. I pray that, Jesus, you would draw near to us. Some of us are just are caught in a problem set still. Some of us are tangled up in a relationship uh, that feels too tricky to manage. Uh, some of us are really full of doubts, more doubts and more fear and more anger than love and compassion and certainty. Um, some of us feel the opposite. And I pray that you'd meet us where we are. Um, I pray that you would draw close to us and do it through this time. This is the most unlikely means me standing up and talking about your words written so long ago. But I pray that you would reverse our expectations, that you'd meet us in our doubts, and that you'd surprise us by your goodness. And I pray that especially about a topic as loaded as dating. Jesus, would you be more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts, no matter where we are with you. In your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to start with a piece of literature, if I can. It's a selection from a novel called When Beauty Tamed the Beast. It's a classic. When Beauty Tamed the Beast. His kiss was no gentle adoration. It was a ravaging, craving kiss. A wildly passionate, tumultuous, stand-and-deliver kiss. That might be my favorite line in all of literature, but we'll keep, we'll keep going. He tasted of the smoky tea he had for breakfast and some wilder substance, desire. <laughs> it was the sort of kiss that a gentleman never, ever gave a lady, and Linnae loved it. <laughs> yes, that quotation is from a romance novel. <laughs> That's when Beauty Tamed the Beast is a Roman no- romance novel. Um, I read it from a Valentine's Day USA Today uh, paper. Don't judge me. Um, I was like New York Times, Washington Post. And, okay. But it does give us one over-the-top way that we culturally describe dating. And romance, for that matter. Along with pop songs, personal experiences, stories of friends and family, romance novels and romance novels turned into movies, a.k.a. Nicholas Sparks, We kind of tend to use these things to fill in our personal backdrop of what it means to relate romantically. You see, we all have this vision of what falling in love and getting serious actually look like. And though Taylor Swift and Cardi B didn't dominate the ancient Israelite Spotify playlist back in the day, okay, the Israelites had their own cultural vision of what romantic relationships should be. And God was speaking to them there And he's speaking to us here in the book of Genesis. My point is this, that I think Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, are actually intentionally giving us a defining vision of what the process of romantically relating looks like. Okay, they're giving us a defining vision of what it looks like to relate romantically. These verses are the first love story. And it's set in this meaningful time and place, a magnificent time and place. During the creation and before the fall of everything, when relationships were the way they were supposed to be. And so this is the story of Adam and Eve, and it gives us a truly ideal vision of how to relate romantically, what to strive for in romantic relationships. And you may find this passage a very odd choice for dating. (laughs) Uh, But I want you to remember 
that there is no secret dating passage in the Bible, contrary to popular belief. Okay, it's not buried in the book of Ezekiel somewhere in there when they're measuring the temple. Okay, in fact, in fact, the Bible never uses the word dating. It doesn't even have a direct concept for the word dating in all of the Bible, especially what we mean by dating. And this is going to be so surprising for some of you because you've grown up in a Christian culture that speaks authoritatively about dating, as if this is the way to do it. And I'm just trying to tell you that there's really no passage that talks about it directly. Uh, And I'm going to go so far as to say when I became a Christian in college, I was a very young Christian, and I heard, I was sitting on the hall, first little, and I heard people talking about dating. And I heard them talking so matter-of-factly about what should be done and shouldn't be done that I ran to my Bible and I flipped through the entire thing and I thought, there must be a second Bible. Because these people really know what they're talking about. (laughs) But I can't find it anywhere. (laughs) Okay? So all that's to say, instead of how-to instructions, God has given us Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25, a beautiful vision of dating. In the midst of a passage about creation and sex and marriage, In a sentence, the ideal picture of romance communicates something essential about marriage. This passage is communicating something essential about marriage. Or excuse me, dating. Why am I talking about marriage? About dating. Dating. It's communicating something essential about dating. Dating is wanting and moving toward union. Dating is wanting and moving towards union. Union with a future spouse and communion with Jesus Christ. So dating is wanting and moving towards union, union with the future spouse, and communion with Jesus Christ. That's sort of the sentence level what we're talking about. But our passage tonight explains it a lot more deeply. It goes into this idea of this longing that's behind dating and how it points to our need for Jesus. And it does it through three stages, each with its own present-day applications to be gleaned. First, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 2 and see how the longing for union is there. And verse 18. Second, Genesis 2 shows us the quest for union, verses 19 through 22. And third and finally, Genesis 2 shows us the discovery of union, verses 23 through 25. Those are on your handout, so I'm not going to repeat the points if that makes sense. So that's where we're up to, that's where we're going. And we're going to begin the way that we usually begin. We're going to start at the beginning and we're going to work our way through. Um, And we're going to look at the longing of union that's behind dating, the longing for union that's behind dating in verse 18. When I read like verse 18 here, if you look with me, when I read that, I'm always reminded of this story. And it's a story that comes from uh, a singer-songwriter, David Wilcox, in his live album. And he's talking about his visit to the Biltmore estate. Okay, some of you are very familiar with the Biltmore. The Biltmore um, is a Vanderbilt family property that's in, near Asheville, in Asheville, North Carolina, and it's designed as the world's largest private estate at the time. It was supposed to be in the world, let alone the United States. And Wilcox is describing taking his friends and touring around this giant estate of the Biltmore. There's this huge main house that he goes into, and as this kind of the tour guide is telling him all these facts about the person and the, and the house, he starts to get more and more irritated. He's not sure why, because it's like a beautiful weather, he's with his friends, he's at this beautiful place, but David Wilcox gets more and more angry, and he's just trying to shake it off. He's like, David, come on, it's fine, you're fine. But he, walking around this giant echoing mansion, he couldn't stop feeling deeply irritated. And finally, his, as his frustration begins to peak, Wilcox realized why he was so upset. 
In his own words, he was metaphorically bugged. Metaphorically bugged. You see, like, Wilcox was standing there in the giant Biltmore dining room, and he was thinking about how the Vanderbilt person who built and owned the house oftentimes lived alone in this giant house. And he was imagining, like, an everyday morning for this Vanderbilt guy. Like how he would get up out of his giant canopy bed and put on his slippers and his bathrobe and how he would walk down his giant winding staircase and he'd come down and he'd get out his cornflakes and read his paper okay, at his massive dining room table, the dining room table that sat 100 people. And the loneliness of living alone was hard enough, but for David Wilcox, it felt like the whole thing was just rubbing in how lonely it must have felt to be that guy in that place. And the reason that that exaggerated loneliness of the Vanderbilt uh, owner uh, bothered him so much is that that loneliness reminded him of the loneliness that he felt in his heart. And he writes a song about it. And the song is, that's what the lonely is for. That's what the lonely is for. And this song, Wilcox describes how his heart feels so deep and so large. His heart feels built to enjoy, to possess so much more than he could possibly fill it with. The depth of his dreams, the height of his wishes, the length of his vision is constant gusting drafts of loneliness inside of him. And this thin fire of romance, this little candlelight flame can't possibly warm the impossibly tall and deep halls of his heart. And Wilcox concludes that the heart is so deep and so high and so wide by design so that He'll follow that something more so that he'll follow and look for God. The God of the universe provides the only filling for his heart, the very one who has put eternity into man's heart to begin with. But really, like Wilcox's point is that deep within all of us, there is this lonely, hollow ache that we all feel, that we oftentimes feel the most around topics like dating and romance. It's an ache for deep relationship. It's an ache with God and then for other human beings. And we feel this ache is a sense of incompleteness, a longing for union, for a fuller mind, body, and soul, and heart connection. And this needy loneliness isn't actually a sin, and it isn't a cure. The cure to it is not just praying harder and praying longer. The longing for union inside of all human beings this side of heaven is actually there by design. It's there for a reason. Just look at the honest recognition that we see in this passage in verse 18 of chapter 2. I'll give you a little backdrop, a context. In the first two chapters of Genesis, God has surveyed everything he's made, the universe, and he is burst forth in a groundswell of praise. It was good. It was good. It was very good. But then God looked at Adam in his loneliness and he says, it is not good. It's not good. It's not good for man to be alone. And there in the Garden of Eden, Adam feels the same aching desire for union. He wants companionship. He wants someone to ease his loneliness. Even with walks with God in the cool of the day, this is even before sin that is evil has entered the planet. He feels this way. Like Adam, we're all lonely. And we're lonely not just for God. We long for one another. We long, most of us, for a significant other. 
And this thought leads to like the first set of applications, okay? There's nothing wrong with you wanting to get married. There's nothing wrong with wanting to date. Some well-meaning advice says don't seriously date until you're satisfied with God alone or until you're self-sufficient. You've made it in your career or lifestyle. You know, like you're at least your mid-20s, maybe 30s, certainly out of college for Pete's sake. But that kind of thinking is assuming that needing others comes from the fall, that needing others is an internal problem. And besides, like, just tell me the last week-long stretch when you were truly and entirely satisfied with God. I can't answer that question either. And I'm married and a pastor. Okay. What's more, let me know when you've met, you've made it in life. Can you just like call me if you're not there yet or text me? Okay. When you've mastered your personal universe, let me know. I'm in my 30s. I own a house. I have a mortgage, a family, a job I love, a minivan, and I'm not even close. Not even close to feeling like I'm on top of it. So again, there's a, there's a caution here not to think that we're not ready to date. But at the same time, Genesis 2 and David Wilcox remind us that the thin, flickering flame of romantic relationship cannot completely warm our built-more-sized hearts. Listen to the way that the atheist cultural anthropologist Ernest Becker describes the false expectation behind romance. In the absence of God and getting your glory that way, now you're suddenly looking for self-glorification. What he means by self-worth. You're looking for self-worth in the love of the other person. The self-glorification we need in our inmost being, we now as secular people look for in the love partner. What, it, what is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to this position? We want to be rid of our faults. We want to be rid, uh, we want to be rid of our feelings of nothingness. We want to be justified. We want to know our existence has not been in vain. We want redemption, nothing less. Needless to say, human love partners cannot give you this. That's an atheist. Our longing for union is big enough, this is the point, to contain both a longing for a human partner and beneath this desire, there's always a deeper desire, a longing for a divine partner, God. Because only God in the person of Jesus Christ has the empathy and the ability to rid us of our faults. He's the only one who can comfort our feelings of nothingness and justify my very existence. So with this two-layered longing in mind, God cares enough about Adam and enough about us to ease our romantic loneliness. So he could have just stopped there, but he realizes that he's put that in place and it's not good for Adam to be alone. God in his goodness does something about Adam and human loneliness. God moves towards completing Adam and completing many of us here called to marriage. The vast majority of you people, and in, in, in my, obviously in my case, who feel like there's a longing for a significant other that's called to marriage. Most of you will be married who feel that way. Not all of you, but most of you. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. 
Okay, and God does this move by making a suitable or fit partner a present or future spouse. Okay? You see, God is saying something important about dating here. He's saying that dating is first and foremost about recognizing our personal longing to date. And secondly, setting out to look for and discover a suitable person to marry. And this is our second point, the quest for union. Verses 19 through 22 on your handout, the second point. Okay, so verses 19 through 22 depict Adam's quest for someone who fits him. In the Hebrew, this is a combination of two prepositions. Literally in the Hebrew, someone to be with Adam shoulder to shoulder, correspond to Adam. That is to to be with him in this enormous calling to keep and to work the created world around him. He needs a shoulder to shoulder partner. And then to be with him face to face, to know and to be known intimately, physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, socially, to be understood deep down to his toes. And Adam is looking for basically a good life on life match, a spouse. And this is what dating is about. It's actually a search for his future spouse. And that's actually where the seemingly random zoological excursion happens here, where he's like naming the animals. That's part of the search for the right spouse. God asks Adam to examine and then name all the animals to see that they are not his suitable helper. They do not share a core equality, a human ability and a human need. There are different species. Okay? And so Adam's match in verses 19 through 20 teaches us that our future spouse has to be equal. Equal. By the way, like some of you are really hung up on this, so I'm just going to explain the Hebrew here. The Hebrew word that's translated helper, it's a very un- I've been using partner on purpose. I think it's a very unhelpful translation. Azer is not sexist or demeaning. Okay? It's the same word that God uses of himself in the Psalms. He is a helper for his people, an azer for his people. So it's really important not to get hung up. This isn't like Eve bringing the lemonade so that Adam can finish the treehouse. Okay, it's not that kind of helper. So in dating, we've got to practice and we've got to look for that dignity, that equality in a partner. And so if you're not dating someone, but you want to, like let's say you're in that space, um, look for someone you can actually respect. Someone that is your equal, who shares core similarities, the same spiritual beliefs, the same character, the same basic life trajectory and direction. And here's the thing. Don't let that make you afraid to date people. It's trial and error out there, people. You don't know who that person is. We'll talk more about that next week, okay? But you also have to be free of the fact that you're not going to marry everyone you date. Thank goodness if you dated anyone in middle school, okay? (laughs) That is a disaster. (laughs) Imagine marrying that person. Imagine them marrying your middle school self. Okay. But the person you do marry, here's the important thing. The person you do marry is always someone you dated first. Does that make sense? So you've got to date someone to marry someone. It doesn't just happen, okay, especially in the Western world. So therefore, when we choose who to date, we've got to think about what makes for marriage material. And that requires thinking about what marriage requires, living in the same space for the rest of your life, making big, faithful decisions for each other, kids, jobs, future geography, housing, And then also you should know that you become more and more like your spouse, more like your spouse than anyone else in your life. And guess what? 
his or her opinion of you will matter more than anyone else's opinion of you in your life. And you want to be on the same page to communicate at these core level, let alone to live together. Can you imagine? And so being in love, the point is that being in love is not enough. It's not enough. I like the way that Denis de Rougemont puts it. He's a writer. Swiss, of course. That's why I can't pronounce his name. Okay. He says this. Why should neurotic, selfish, immature people become angels when they fall in love? Why should selfish, neurotic, immature people become angels all of a sudden when they fall in love? They don't. We don't. Okay. Genesis 2 is encouraging us to make dating decisions based on someone's character and commitments and not just on the Twitter-pated way that we feel about them when we're around them, okay? Maybe for some of you, this looks like holstering the hotness radar that you go around Davidson campus looking for people, okay? Oh, do they fit the criteria? Nine out of 10, all right? Like, calm down, okay? Maybe sometimes we need to look first for core equality. Maybe we need to lead with friendship before we look at appearance, or at least, Friendship needs to be a factor as we factor in appearance. Does that make sense? So notice God doesn't advocate, just advocate a core equality. He's not just after a core equality. He also shows us a suitable partner has a unique peripheral difference. They have unique peripheral differences from us. God wants us to experience a taste of his triune unity and diversity. Right? So he is equal within himself. The he who is a we is equal within himself. Three persons, equal in substance and power and glory, equal, but different in personhood, relationships, and responsibilities. That unity and diversity, what university comes from, the name, by the way. That, and this is why in verses 21 through 22, God didn't make an Adam clone. He didn't make Adam 2.0 from the same organic matter and the same divine breath. Instead, God makes someone different from man. He makes a woman. Eve is made out of Adam's side. I love the way that Matthew Henry puts it. He's made out, Eve is made out of Adam's side to be equal with him. Under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. You see, these verses teach us that our future spouse must be different than us. Okay? In dating, we must sometimes practice looking for and surrendering to these peripheral differences. Look to date somebody who can actually compliment you. Use different background and different interests. Give you a perspective that sands your rough edges. That sees your blind spots for you. You don't need a yes man or a yes woman. You need a partner. If you're in a dating relationship, my question for you is, are you allowing your boyfriend or girlfriend to challenge you? If you're in a dating relationship, are you allowing your boyfriend or girlfriend to change you for the better? Does he or she help you to see your personal needs and your interpersonal wrongs on a daily basis? Is he, will she point you to Jesus's presence and forgiveness on a regular basis? So that's a lot. And I'm thankful for Tim Keller, who's going to write all my wrongs. Okay. He's a pastor and writer in Manhattan, and he sums all the dating advice up that we've just talked about in these last few verses as well. He says to ask yourself this question. He boils it all down to one question. Before you date someone or as you're dating somebody, ask this question. Does this person 
have the potential to be the number one counselor in my life? Does this person have the potential to be the number one counselor in my life? Will he or she be my best friend for life? That's the question we need to be asking when we think about dating. To be these things, the other person must be your equal, but also different. But to be these things, that the right person doesn't have to be perfect. And this is where like friends and family and mentors can help you make good decisions. And in some cases, to push you to make a decision one way or the other, or for Pete's sake at all. Okay, some of us really struggle to make that decision. So here's the thing. Only by these dating decisions do we actually get to verses 23 and 25 through 25. And discovery of union, our third point and final point tonight. So verses 23 through 25 describe the why of marriage, right? They describe union. Look, first, verses 20, verse 23, Adam composes this impromptu song, right? About Eve, his right spouse. His love song, the very first love song in the entire history of the human world. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. At last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. In the famous words of that overly quoted movie, Jerry Maguire, he's saying to Eve, you complete me. Okay? I like the way that a friend of mine, Les Newsom, puts it. Love you. I am you. Okay? <laughs> So what's going on in that scene, okay? So second, verse 24, it tells us that when we realize that we ought to be intimately connected to somebody, when we realize that we're in this with this person, that we like them, that we want to be a part of what they're up to, we make it public and official. We get married. We make a vow. We leave our parents. We hold fast to a new life with that new person. And then third and finally, verse 25 tells us that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed in their marriage. They were naked and unashamed in their marriage. Look, I understand that um, this is before evil and hurt entered the scene in the world. And some of you are like, this is not the marriages I've seen growing up. The marriages I saw growing up with my friends or my own family were two people dressed head to toe in chainmail, swinging battle axes at each other. And then when things got really dirty, they, took a gra they grabbed a, a pile full of self-pity and they threw it like sand in the other person's eyes. But it's important to realize that we, when we get married, we get to be totally naked with someone. That's what marriage is for, to be totally naked with somebody. In every way to be physically, emotionally, mentally, financially, socially, and spiritually naked. We can be naked in all these ways without shame and without fear of rejection because that person has vowed before God and everybody close to him or her in her entire or his entire life, right? To be faithful, to be present, to love you no matter what, till death do us part. So that's beautiful, right? Some of you are like, eh, yeah, sure. But you're like... <laughs> Or at least I think it is, Sid, right? But almost none of you are there. You're not married yet. So you're like, Sid, this is a great sermon about something I'm not in. What is this, like, adult swim? And I'm like, seven? <laughs> what is this, couple skate? <laughs> okay. Not even close. Not married. Not even close. So, but Genesis 2 is also telling us something really important for our in-between stage, okay? It's telling us why college dating relationships tend to be so very difficult. It's because human beings are made for union, 
but we like to pretend like we're not made for union. Okay, the vast majority of you are made to be someone else's flesh and bone. You are made to be one flesh with someone. You are made to cleave and to hold fast. But we can, and let me just really be clear, I dated like this, okay, as if this wasn't the case. I discounted how my body could be connected to my heart. That we actually, all of us innately, have this built-in pull towards oneness from creation. That steamrolls man-made silly rules. Side hugs are no, cannot stand up to the steamroller of our biology, okay? Side hugs only rules, don't do that, okay? Nor does pray together, lay, what was it? Lay together, pray together, or pray together, lay together. Have you heard that one? If you pray together, you lay together. Okay, that's, that's not gonna stand up to the steamroller, okay? And it also, like, and I'll say this to the other side of things, it makes non-committal sex impossible for the long term. Because we're wired for this unity, this union. And this is why my friend John Stone describes all dating relationships as a roller coaster. You ready for an extended analogy? That's what we're gonna do. Okay, all dating relationships are a roller coaster. All dating relationships have the same basic course because we're all made the same. It doesn't matter if we're talking about the perfect couple, right? Some of you have seen this perfect couple or you're in this perfect romantic relationship where conversations are like a compliment competition. Before you get off FaceTime, you're saying, no, you're the best. No, 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 you're the best. I don't deserve you. No, 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 I don't deserve you. Or that couple that, you know, it's, or on the other end of things, that couple that breaks up and get back together so many times and so dramatically that when they say it's over for real, Sid, you go, right. <laughs> sure, just like it was 17 times ago. Okay? Any, so perfect or imperfect couples, they all start in this covered house at the roller coaster entrance. And this is when you're still getting to know each other. Maybe you've gone on a few dates or you've done things together that should have been called dates. Um, or, you know, should be called dating. We've done this, okay? The point is things are neutral. If you break up, you can still be good friends. Your David as a community doesn't require taking sides when you break up at this point. Okay, it's still, still okay. But then the ride begins and the Genesis 2 toe chain inside of us all starts to pull us up and pull the whole relationship up that first big roller coaster hill. Okay? Things are getting serious and exclusive. You've had the discuss the relationship talk or you're starting to hang out together for hours on end at night. Your dates have gone from an exciting 15 minutes at Commons or in, in the courtyard of F, or, or, they're, or they're talking and touching, and then they've gone from that point, that 15 minutes, exciting 15 minutes, to talking or touching or talking and touching marathons. That's where you are, okay? You've become, um, then all of a sudden over time, as you start to kind of pull up that first hill, you become more and more united emotionally and socially and physically. You start to move up that first hill, okay? It could be one of those things, it could be all of those things, those parts of you, and you reach this critical point of no return at the very top of the roller coaster hill, that first hill. You've become so connected, you've had or on the very verge of physical or emotional sex. You become so connected socially that you've unofficially been adopted by his family. Outlook has gone ahead and merged your calendars because they're so similar. Okay, your friends view, view you from a distance as a two-wheeled unit, and behind your back, they call you by one hyphenated name. That's how you're in. At this point, you are teetering. 
You are nosing down that first hill into bone and flesh union, and you can feel it. And all of a sudden you go into like panic mode, right? You start to go like, when, this is when you like start reading, this is when people who are in this place start to read dating books, like voraciously. <laughs> How do I figure this out? The resetting limits they broke two months ago, ah, we could just, we could repair this. And they're asking roommates for impossible pieces of advice that no one can give them <laughs> until late into the evening. But of course, none of these things really work. So what do you do when you reach this point of no return, when you're teetering on the top of that roller coaster hill? According to John Stone, you've got two options. Get married or break up. Get married or break up. In fact, Stone says this so often that he's thinking about a book. And the title of the book is Get Married or Break Up. But <laughs> Subtitle, but leave the rest of us alone because you're driving us crazy. <laughs> Okay? But hear me, like, this advice is grounded in the Bible, and it's full of grace. It is full of grace, okay? The roller coaster is not a metaphor of judgment. It is Genesis 2 straight talk. It is Genesis 2 straight talk. If you've gone too far, you don't have to marry him or her. You can break up, okay? But if you don't think he is a suitable future spouse, do him the dignity of not spending more of your time and affections. Do him the favor of saying no and not not now, okay? But if you want to marry that woman, you absolutely can marry her. Remember, marriage is a good thing and it is the end goal, the ultimate trajectory of dating. So if you've gone too far, you haven't ruined your future marriage. You could still get married, but why increase her shame? Why increase the emotional and the spiritual and the physical and the social nakedness without the protection, without the permanence of a wedding vow? Look, I get it. Marriage, talking about this in the midst of dating or just any time ever in college, freaks us out. Just totally freaks us out. I get it. Though it is actually possible and acceptable in college to get married, I'm just putting that on the table. You don't have to believe me. Okay, it's possible. You might be asking, this is the question behind the question, what can I do, and this is why we're going to overtime, what can I do in a dating relationship not to reach the top of the hill? Not to reach that point of breakup or get married. What can I do to delay that point when we're both ready until at least after grad school? Okay, so what do you do? I think this is where another book of the Bible, the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon actually comes in. It has this refrain, it repeats over and over and over again. It says, do not arouse love until it so desires. Do not arouse love until it so desires. And I think this means that we need, by the Holy Spirit's help, to slow down the knitting that comes together that happens in dating from the very beginning, okay? How do you slow down that internal pull chain, that internal knitting that happens over and over and over again? First, I think you've got to cultivate what Tim Keller calls a comprehensive attraction. Cultivate a comprehensive attraction. What if we spend an equal amount of time cultivating not just the physical or the emotional side of the relationship, but also the social, the mental, and the spiritual aspects of that relationship? Instead of sprinting to where we think the buried treasure is, what if we took the time to explore the whole of that other person? And this might learn, this might be like learning to love them more than just one way. And what if we tried to love all of that person with a tender and a slow curiosity? 
What if we majored in friendship and minored in romance? That's how you slow down the pull chain of Genesis 2. And this leads to the second application of not arousing love until it so desires. To do this at a heart level, you need, you and I, you need and I needed, trust me, I didn't do this well, okay, to honestly pray for, the, for that longing, to hold it up in prayer to God and ask him, right, what do I do with this about this special somebody? Because at least some of that loneliness, that romantic affection is misplaced. As David Wilcox sang before, the impossibly tall and impossibly deep halls of my heart need a roaring bonfire. They need a central HVAC heating system. They need Jesus's unflinching, steadfast, unconditional love for me. Look, I know this is a ton. And again, some of you are like, how is there a part two to this? How is he gonna talk more about dating? And I know from personal experience that that loneliness aches something cold. And I know that the quest for the right somebody feels impossible and some, some of this stuff, maybe a lot of this stuff feels outdated. And the dating roller coaster can seem like short-lived thrills followed by constant failure. But more importantly and more powerfully, Jesus knows all of these things about us. And what's more, Jesus, the bridegroom to our suitable helper, Jesus shows up. Even in the worst moments, even when we do something that we promised we would never do, where we're hiding in our loneliness, when we're hurting and hurt in our dating, even in those moments of naked shame, Jesus shows up. And do you know what Jesus does? He tenderly covers our nakedness. That's the literal image behind the Hebrew word for atonement, covering. It's covering. And how do I know that? I know that because on a cross in a historical time and a historical place, Jesus held his arms open for us. In fact, they were pinned open. And a spear opened up his side to give us eternal life. And Jesus sang over us, even in the midst of the agony of cross, and he still sings over us, even now. And he says, this, you, at last, are bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And these words continue to bathe our shame. They scrub and they caress us until we believe the truth about ourselves again, that we are complete in him. Jesus is making it so we will have no spots, no wrinkles, no blemishes, and or any such thing, any such physical, emotional, social, spiritual, mental thing. You see, Jesus's love is a raving, or excuse me, a ravaging, craving, wildly passionate, tumultuous, stand up and deliver kind of love. It's a love that romance novels and romance novels turned to movies can only really wink at. Would you pray with me? Father, thanks for the extra time there. Uh, thanks for these students. Thanks for their willingness to consider this. Uh, I pray for the conversations that come out of this between each other with, with me. Um, I pray that with you. Um, I pray that 
we would really wrestle with some of this material. Um, who knew that Genesis 2 had so much to say about dating? Um, I pray that you would encourage us um, as you knew it would. And I, I pray that you'd meet us in our loneliness, in our loneliness in marriage, in our loneliness in dating, in our loneliness in not dating and not being married. I pray that you'd meet us. And I, I pray that you'd show us um, by your power and by your presence and by your forgiveness uh, that you are what we need, but that you're also a God who gives good gifts like people who are suitable, people who are fit, people who have a core equality and a peripheral difference. We ask for this. We ask for your good gifts yet again to shine on us, to rain upon us. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.